For those remaining behind in the auditorium as well as watching online, let's take our Bibles and head to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And this morning we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses, Lord willing. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Hopefully you'll stick around and still listen to me after I was a big meanie, but uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Follow along with me if you would. I'll read them as you follow along. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother who judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of God. What we want to talk about then this morning is this idea of priorities. Where are our priorities? Are we prioritizing the things of this life, the things that are readily accessible to us, the things that call for our attention each and every day? Or do we have an eternal perspective, God's perspective on life? Do we value what he values? Do we share what he has asked us to share? Do we model life lived his way? Or are we living our lives for ourselves and for the things immediately around us? James talked to us through God's word last Sunday about the way of the wise and the way of the foolish, and he defined it for us and walked through it with us. But as he now transitions into chapter four, the question before us is, so how does all this happen? Where does all this come from? Yes, James, I understand that there's a way of wisdom, and I want to follow in that, I think. I don't think anybody here this morning says, I want to be a fool. That's my life's goal and ambition. But what does that look like? How do we get there? And he's going to answer that in part for us in the first part of chapter 4. As mentioned off the top in our study through James, this is our summer series in the book of James. James is the half-brother of Jesus. They shared a mother. They did not share a father because, as we know, Jesus was virgin-born. 
James grew up in the same house as Jesus. He saw perfection every single day. And according to John's gospel, he did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. In fact, if you read between the lines, there seems to be an implication that John and the other boys are a little bit tired of this perfect brother of theirs. Again, as we've said, I'm not sure about you, those of you that have siblings, I don't know if your sibling sort of announced, especially as the oldest, I'm perfect, I'm the son of God, we'd have really good relationships with that particular sibling, especially if they actually were and could prove it and back it up. James is not impressed with his half-brother Jesus until he is. And he submits to him and calls him in James 1 himself a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it says something to us that someone who grew up with Jesus, saw him every single day, watched him respond to any number of realities that happen to us every day and to perhaps most likely the death of their father, in big things and small things, James had a front row seat for Jesus and because of his life and then his death, burial, and resurrection, he came to say, and that is the Lord Christ, my brother Jesus. And what James 1, 26 and 27, then he says, to follow Jesus then looks like at least these three things, to help the helpless without expectation of anything back in return, to watch our speech, which means that we need to have our hearts transformed, and to not be enamored with the things around us. And then he's, gonna, he's unpacking those as we, as we continue through the book. And as we find ourselves now in the first part of chapter four, we're on the third of those three things, which is how do we stop uh, being enamored with the things around us? How do we resist the siren call of our culture and society? It's everywhere. The delights and pleasures of this life seem to be endless and are offered up to us consistently. And there, it is told to us, there are no consequences for engaging in these things and we should do it to the fullest. And yet James provides for us a better way. One of the marks of the way of wisdom is unity with God and each other. And not a false unity, not a we're just all smiling as if we're all united, but a unity around the truth of who God is and what he has said, true unity. Division, destruction, the list that we read from, or that was read to us from 1 Timothy, among other things, are not the way of wisdom, but they're the way of folly. And so James ends chapter 4 with verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Jesus had said in John 17, by this people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for each other and if you're united, if you're a one, Father, you and I are one, and I desire that my disciples are one with each other and one with us, that their hearts would beat for us and for our way of doing things and seeing things, because it is the best way, it is really the only way. And so that unity should mark those that are walking the way of wisdom, fights and grudges and unforgiveness and hatred and malice, and gossip, and slander. None of these things and others should mark a believer in Jesus Christ. Believers in Jesus Christ should be marked by humility, and love, and compassion, and gentleness, 
and goodness and kindness, these and other things that certainly marked our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, though, I want to read for you the view of a Jewish philosopher from the 17th century. Spinoza says this, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. Can I just say to everyone here, as well as watching online, but in particular those that are a part of Grace Baptist, if there's anything that is breaking a relationship between you and anybody else who's a part of Grace Baptist, fix that. Spend time in prayer, get help when and if necessary, but mend those relationships. The way of broken relationships is not the way of Jesus. The way of disunity and division and destruction and hatred and judgmentalism is not the way of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is to this that James first turns his attention. And I think in the first place, one of the wrong priorities we have is we wrongly prioritize our sinful desires. Notice in the first place, our sinful desires cause conflict. What causes quarrels and fights among you, James says. So a harvest of righteousness, the, the fruit that is righteousness, is sown, the seeds are sown in peace by those who make peace. Now again, this is not a fake unity. We have lots of that as well in Christendom. But this is, we are gathered together in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ around truth of who he is and what he has revealed in his word. And based on that, we're gonna lay aside pettiness. We're gonna lay aside our pet peeves and our hobby horses and our preferences for things that are not in God's word. We're going to lay aside those things to come together and exalt him so that this group is not marked by our individual preferences and the things that we like and the way we like them, but it is marked by the preeminence and the primacy of God and his glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so James says, but there are quarrels and fights. These are happening. And we get some glimpses throughout the book, perhaps it's been when rich and poor, because he's mentioned that in chapter one, two, and he'll mention it again at the end of four and into five. Perhaps it's quarrels between people that desire leadership for the wrong reasons, three, one, and following. Whatever is happening, James is writing to his audience to say, this should not be happening. So where is it coming from? What's the source of this? He says, your passions are at war within you. That's where it's coming from. You desire, and because you don't have, <clears throat> you murder. The word for murder is the word for murder in the Greek, but it probably is more akin to the teachings of Christ where he says, if you had hatred and malice in your heart and desire somebody dead, you have committed murder, even if you haven't picked up a weapon or an implement of some sort and actually physically taken someone's life. You covet. You can't get it, so you fight and you quarrel. What is at the root of this? James is not saying that you still have within you resident the old nature 
And so you have this sort of quarrel inside of you between the good side of you and the bad side of you. We always, we've seen the, you know, the angel on the one shoulder and the devil on the other. Have we seen this? That's not what James is talking about here. No, he's saying resident within each of us is desire after certain things. And it's different for each of us. But the Greek word here is the root of the word we get in English of hedonism. That which we desire, pleasure for us, we want it done our way, in our timing, it is giving full expression to selfishness. That's what's going on inside of our hearts, continually. And James says, if someone gets in the way of that, watch out. That's what causes wars and quarrels and fights among you. Somebody could make some sort of decision on behalf of the church. The elders can make a decision on behalf of the church. It doesn't impact your particular desire, your particular pleasure, the thing that you particularly really want, so you don't care. But what happens when the eldership of the church, leadership church, steps on your particular toe or toes? Then what happens? Anybody been in a bad church meeting? Is it just me? What's at the root of that? What's at the root of that is me. This is what I want, and you're not letting me have it. So I got to get you out of the way. And James says that's not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of our Lord Jesus Christ. Selfishness, self-promotion, the desire after selfish, sinful desires, prioritizing me, over God is not the way of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What does he say in the Gospels? I've come to do the will of my Father in heaven. There's many examples of this. One of the greatest that comes to mind to me is the temptation of Jesus Christ. It appears in the Gospels, we're familiar with it, <clears throat> Satan himself comes to tempt Jesus after he's been 40 days in the wilderness with no food, uh, perhaps a little sleep, He's tired, he's lonely, he's vulnerable. And that is the time that Satan comes and he offers up three temptations. Now, jumping off of a high structure and bowing down and worship Satan, I get that. Probably not the best thing to do. But the one temptation that all, had always intrigued me was Satan's first temptation out of the gate is turn the stones into bread. And that one for a long time I didn't get. What's the big deal? Can Jesus turn stones into bread? Absolutely, I think. Everybody with me? Okay, he can do it. Who's hurt by it? What, what's the big deal? Till I dug deeper. And mark this. Jesus Christ never used his power for himself. Not even when he was starving. He never misused his power. <laughs> Jesus Christ was never selfish. And James knows that because he grew up in the same house. What would it be like to have a sibling who was never selfish, never fought over the last piece of cake, never blamed anything on you, was never about themselves? We can't wrap our heads around that. <laughs> James could because he saw it in action. Jesus was never selfish. 
What's the root cause of quarrels and fights and church splits and grudges and denominationalism and judgmentalism and all this stuff? What's the root cause? Selfishness. I have these desires and I must have them at all costs. And if you get in my way, watch out. And James says that is not the way of Christ. Notice that our sinful desires also quench prayerfulness. What does he say? You don't, you don't have because you don't ask. Now, you ever remember this conversation with your siblings? You go ask dad. No, you ask him. No, you ask him. When it was something that you knew dad or mom was on board with, was there as big of a struggle with the ask? What was the struggle? Maybe the ask, but the bigger struggle was the ask itself. I want more dessert. I want more candy. I want to stay up later past my bedtime. Pick a thing. Why was that a problem to ask? Because we knew the answer, right? That's why I wanted one of our siblings to go and get the no and the rejection and the ugh. Why don't we go to God with some prayers? Because we are deep down aware of the selfishness behind them. James says you don't have because you don't ask. We're hesitant to ask, and rightly so, for the things that are selfish desires. And yet, in the third place, our sinful desires are actually destructive. So then he goes on to say, you do ask, but you don't receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Same word for passions in verse 1. What's the problem? When God says no to one of your prayers, it is not because he doesn't love you. It's because he does. How many kids who grew up in rich households come of age having never had to work for anything their entire life, get their inheritance, and what do they do with it? Invest it wisely, become solid citizens? No, what happens? They just squander it all. That's a lot of stuff to be given to someone who can't handle it. Because what's their motivation? Themselves. What's all of our motivation without the gospel? It's us. There's a scene in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, early on. Gandalf comes back to the Shire, and he asks where the ring is, the ring of power, Sauron's ring. And Frodo says, it's here. And when Frodo realizes the danger he's in, what does he do? In his innocence... He offers it to Gandalf. And what does Gandalf says? Don't do that. You would offer this to me from an innocent motivation, but in me, with the power that I possess, it could do destruction beyond imagination. Are we aware of the destructive nature of our sinful desires and our selfish passions? I don't think we take it seriously enough. It's just a little thing. It's just me by myself or maybe... A few other people, it's not a big deal, it's not a big issue, it's not a big problem. Well, James says there's great destruction in our sinful desires. It ruins marriages, it destroys families, it rips apart churches, and most, if not all of us, sitting here this morning have been on the receiving end of that. 
We have wept tears of deep grief to see a group of people that supposedly love Jesus tear each other apart and worse in his name. It's awful when our sinful desires are allowed to have full expression. James says the reason why you don't get when you do ask is because your motivation is incorrect. All you want is, God, give me this so I can have the thing that I desire, my sinful desires, my selfish pleasures. And James says that should not be. And so we wrongly prioritize our sinful and selfish desires. The other thing we wrongly prioritize is temporal delights. We wrongly prioritize the things of this life and not the things of the life to come. Notice what he says in verse 4 to 6. Again, James doesn't have time to fool around. He wasted the first bit of his life not believing in Jesus, even though he had the best opportunity to do so. And now that he does, he doesn't have time to pull any punches or to sugarcoat anything. And we've noticed that through the book of James. It's very direct and bold and blunt. And so what does he say? You adulterous people. Oh, thanks, James. Yeah, feel good. What is he doing here? He's using Old Testament language. God said to his nation Israel, you are my bride, but you've cheated on me numerous times. Hosea being probably the biggest example of that, among other many biblical passages. Same in the New Testament. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the church is the bride of Christ, and how often do we cheat on Jesus? So James says to them, you adulterous people, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enemy with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Selfishness is incompatible with godliness. You can't have both. You can't love the things of this present world and love Jesus at the same time. You can't do it. You can't have two spouses. I mean, technically you can, and people try, but and some people do, but it's not beneficial, it's not good. You can't date two people simultaneously with everybody's full knowledge of the situation, generally speaking. James says our selfishness is incompatible with godliness. You can't prioritize the things of this life. What did the nation of Israel do? We want a king, why? All because it's beneficial and it's godly and it's wise. No. Well, everybody else has one. We want one too. What does Samuel say? Don't do it. What do the people say? Give us a king. We want one. You can't serve God and yourself. You can't do it. It's, it's incompatible. You can't have the God of self on the throne of your heart and it also be occupied by the one who actually is God. Can't do it. Notice in verse 5, then, idolatry denies God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Stick around for the Q&A starting at 11.15 if you want to do a deeper dive on this verse, one of the hardest verses in the New Testament to uh, translate. And to understand, James is not quoting a direct scripture. He'll do that in in verse 6 with Proverbs 3.34. But he's saying in general, as we look across the scope of scripture, what is God doing? He's yearning after us. 
He wants our full attention and our full worship. And yet, what do we want? We want to worship ourselves and other things. And as our late dear friend Tim Keller has said, idolatry is not worshiping bad things as good things, it's worshiping good things as ultimate things. There's only one God, and he has no rivals. And things that we look to for comfort and guidance and protection, other than God, is idolatry. Calvin said that our our hearts are idol factories, not I-D-L-E, but I-D-O-L. We're constantly producing new things to worship. But there's only one that is worthy of our worship. And so when we worship anything other than God, it is a denial of him. What is the key then? Humility is foundational to wisdom, but he gives more grace. Thanks be to God. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's not talking here about losing salvation. When he calls us adulterous people in friendship with the world, is enemy with God. But he is talking about relationship. If we are brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are sons and daughters of God, that is not what is in question here, but it is, what is in question is the relationship, that we, ongoing relationship that we have with God. Read that again with me if you would. God opposes the proud. We have opposition as we live our daily lives. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Our worst enemy is ourself, and we drag that around everywhere we go. We also have a world system that is against God and becoming increasingly more so. And then we have Satan himself, a very strong foe indeed, who goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So I already have three enemies against us, the biggest one being ourselves. And then when we give in to our selfish and sinful desires, we add a fourth enemy as if that's what we needed. And it's God himself. God is against pride. He stands in opposition to self-worship. Wherever it is found and to what degree it is found, God is against that which worships self because he is the only one worthy of worship and he also knows that worshiping him is the best thing for us. To worship ourselves is to destroy ourselves. It is pain-inducing. It brings suffering and destruction. God wants to save us from ourselves. That's why he sent Jesus. And so God is against us when we worship ourselves. The key then is humility. Submit to him, give honor and glory to him. So we've looked at the wrong things that we prioritize, the wrong priorities we have, prioritizing our own selfish desires and the delights of the world around us. And now we want to look at two things that we should rightly prioritize. The first is to rightly prioritize humility. See, some of us, because of the way that we were raised, the churches that we were in, and the way that we read scripture, we've heard this and we said, okay, so here's the application. I'll get there, Jeff will get there half an hour after me, but I'm already there. Here's what I need to do. I need to do better. I need to try harder. Because I, I have been dabbling around with some sinful desires and I've been giving in to some sinful pleasures. And so this week, this week I'm going to do better. And we've misheard and misread the whole thing. Because that's not what scripture says. We got ourselves into the mess and we compound the error when we think that we are the ones to get ourselves out of the mess. 
You couldn't trust yourself when it came to the sinful desires, but in a twisted way of thinking, you're going to trust yourself to deny the sinful desires? No, 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 no. We're the problem. We're the issue. So what needs to change? We do, but we can't do it. That's why we need God's help. And so we need to rightly prioritize humility. There's 10 imperatives that James gives here in rapid succession. But don't forget, again, the indicatives of Scripture always precede the imperatives. James doesn't just rattle off a bunch of commands for us to go, whoo, all right, checklist for this week. No, what is he saying? He starts with humility and he ends with humility. Verse 6, 7, and then again verse 10. Humility, humility, humility. Submit yourself to God. Surrender to God. And he will lift you up. He will exalt you. Greatest example again is Jesus Christ, Philippians 2. What did he do? He humbled himself, was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. The path is through humility and submission. So submission to God and the resistance of evil, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The submission part, we don't like, but we kind of get it. God's big, we'll submit to him. But then we kind of actually, yeah, resist the devil. All right, bring it on. Me and the devil, toe to toe. Give me the gloves. Is that what James is saying here? No, submission to God and resistance of the devil are connected. The way to resist the devil is to submit to God. Trust me. You go toe to toe with the devil, you'll lose every single time. You're not Jesus, and neither am I. The only hope we have is submission to God. He is my rock. He is my fortress. He is my shield. He is my comfort, as we've read in the liturgy. Submit yourself to God, and that is the way to resist the devil. Read God's word. Consume God's word. Meditate on God's word. Pray to God. Spend time with God's people. Immerse yourself in godliness. Unfortunately, what is the messaging that we far too often immerse ourselves in? We are bombarded with the world's messaging. Subtly and not so subtly. And some of us think we're doing it for the right reasons. I watch a lot of these YouTube channels, a lot of these news shows, so that... I can go on my YouTube channel or my social media and comment about how this guy's an idiot and this guy's a moron and I've got this right. What are we consuming? If you consume 20 to 30 or 40 hours a week of the world's perspective, even if it's from a conservative side and you spend zero hours a week consuming this, guess what's winning out? What are you putting into your mind what is the topic of your conversation? How often do you bend the knee and bow the head in prayer? You're not strong enough to resist the devil. You're not strong enough to resist your own sinful desires and selfish pleasures. Only God in you is. Same for me. Submit to God. Humility. Stay close to God and quickly confess sin, verses 8 and 9. 
Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. You double-minded, same word that he used in chapter 1, for the unstable person. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What is the path to wisdom, humility, confession? You're not as good as you think you are, and neither am I. Why is it so hard to say that we're sorry? It's so hard. Why? We hate being wrong. We hate being seen in a negative light. We hate being anything other than the hero of our own story. And James comes in again and he says, your sinfulness should not be something that you treat lightly. Your sinfulness is no laughing matter. Your state is no laughing matter. You see the, the, the juxtaposition that, he had, that Jesus has with the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee comes in, and we oftentimes read that narrative as if he's just this arrogant individual. And that's certainly the case. But I think he's also sincere. He's not in the temple saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people and I'm not like this guy in, an, in a judgmental way necessarily. We read that into the text. I think in his heart, he thinks he's being sincere. Thank you, God, so much that I'm so much better than everybody else. And he means it. That's the whole culture he's raised in. Do all these things, and you're better. Check off all the checklists, and you're closer to God. And he's doing it. Thank you, God. And yet there is this tax collector, and what does he say? He just smites his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I have no hope apart from you. Keep short sin accounts with God. Don't let things build up. Confession ought to be a regular part of what we do. It's a regular part of what we do every Sunday. We are not as good as we think we are. And so we need to prioritize humility in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We need to prioritize humility. That is something our culture does not do. Our culture prioritizes strength. Our culture prioritizes satire and ridicule. Our culture prioritizes bullying. But James says the pathway to wisdom, the pathway to closeness with God is humility. God, I am nothing, and you are everything. As we said last week, John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. We need to rightly prioritize humility. And secondly, although the fourth point, we need to rightly prioritize unity. It's difficult to know where verses 11 and 12 fit. Do they fit with this, the the, the a section to come, but we're going to deal with it here. Rightly prioritizing unity. Sometimes I think we don't think it matters much if we're united. And yet unity with God and others is one of the most powerful tools we have to proclaim the gospel. All kinds of groups out there pro- uh, claim to be united. You don't have to scratch too far below the surface to realize there's a whole bunch of infighting. Because if you have one sinner in a space, you've got issues. 
Put even one more sinner in that same space, you've doubled the amount of sinners in that space. Now I've got a whole bunch of sinners together. Think about it. Every group that's ever been, where are they now? Every institution that's ever been. Perfect history of unity. Never had any conflict. Name a country that hasn't engaged or been engaged in war or conflict. Name your favorite band. Still together after all these years? Never had a conflict? You can't even get two, three, or even four people to agree for an extended period of time without the grace of God. But the church has something different or should have something different because we have something to rally around. We have someone to rally around and unity should be different. So we need to resist talking down to others. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. This is not denying discernment or the necessity of keeping each other accountable. What James is saying is, do not talk down and talk against other brothers and sisters in Christ. And man, did we fail at this throughout COVID. We were at a conference in Newfoundland a couple Aprils ago, and one of the speakers was asked, in your ministry, what's the greatest source of opposition you've faced? And without missing a beat, she said, myself and other Christians. It's just sad. We read Spinoza off the top. This is a Jewish philosopher, not a believer. How can you say this, but this is what marks you? And it starts with individuals. Do we judge individuals in our hearts? Do we speak against them? Do we privately run them down? And then publicly run them down? How have you spoken about a fellow brother or sister in Christ this week? You built them up, encouraged them. If they listened to that conversation, how would they respond? Would they feel built up and edified and uplifted? Or would they feel defeated, run down? We destroy one another with our words. And James already talked about this in all through chapter 3. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. Yes, hold each other accountable, absolutely. Yes, call out error where it exists. But there's a way to do that, and there's a way not to do that. And far too often, we put ourselves in positions of superiority in our own minds and talk down to fellow believers in Jesus Christ. Resist playing God. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. There is one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? We've already talked about the fact that idolatry denies God, and here we are playing God. As if this brother or sister in Christ needs us to come in and play God in their life. Yes, I know that God has said this, but you really need to hear it from me. James says, you're no longer now just speaking evil against the brother. You're speaking evil against God and his law. God, as I sit here, there's somebody that I think has done something egregious. Again, I can't find it anywhere in Scripture, but it really bothers my sort of preferences. I don't really wish you'd smite them. But it's been a couple months. I haven't seen any smiting take place. In fact, they seem quite happy. 
And so you don't seem to be doing anything, so I'm going to take it upon myself. I'm going to go in. I got this one, God. How dare we? James says, who are you to judge your neighbor? Not in a discernment sense, go to Matthew 7, but Matthew 7, 1, in a judgmental sense. Really? You're hitting it out of the park? (laughs) You're so perfectly obeying the law that you've now become the judge, jury, and executioner of it? Hey, God, you've been working for millennia. Uh, You need a break, so I got this one. I'll take this territory. Charlottetown, I've got it. You can worry about, you know, other places. And then lastly, resist the worst kind of hypocrisy. We missed a piece of 11. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Hypocrisy is saying you're one thing and doing another, and that's bad enough. But hypocrisy is also saying, I'm saying this and doing this on God's behalf, when it's not on God's behalf at all, it's on your behalf. It's reprehensible. The amount of church meetings and church discussions and Christian discussions that have gone on, when someone says, thus saith the Lord, and the Lord did not saith. It's about you. It's about me. And we compound our error when we throw God's name on top. I'm standing for the truth. I'm standing for God and his word and his truth. No, you're not. You're standing for yourself and your own desires and your own pleasures and your lust for power and your own selfishness. That's who you're really standing for. James says, don't lie against the truth. Don't boast about that, he said as he wrapped up chapter 3. It's selfishness on full display, couched in spiritual language and wrongly, falsely being portrayed as being of God. How many times has God's name been used in an argument incorrectly? Well, if God said it, I mean, how am I supposed to go against God? But how often is that God or is that you or me? James says, don't do this. And so what is our response this morning? Our response, question, is our priority the glory of God? Is our priority the glory of us or is our priority the glory of God? And here's the reality, left to ourselves without God's grace, the priority will always be the glory of me. That's how we're wired from the womb. So what we need is not to do more or try harder. What we need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to run to him because only his mercy and grace can save us from ourselves. Submit to him. Respond in humility. Humble yourself before the Lord, James says. Our only hope is the only one who can actually save us. The only one who's more powerful than we are over our own selfishness and our own sinful desires. We need his help, his mercy and grace. You can't do more and try harder. You can, but it's going to end up in the same place. 
What do you need? You need God's mercy and grace. You need the gospel. This is good news. We are great sinners, greater than we oftentimes recognize, but there is a great Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's who James wants to point us to repeatedly. Run to him, and through submission to him, our priority will be the glory of God. That's the only thing that's going to change. Us and the culture around us. The only thing that changes human hearts is God himself. Not politics, not legislation, not that brilliant post, not that amazing satirical video, as funny as it might be. The only thing that can change the human heart and the human heart of the person that you're responding to is the only thing that can change your heart and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Run to him. Submit yourself to him. Prioritize him. All for his glory. And ultimately then, our good. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace in revealing to us truth. Far too often we prioritize ourselves. We prioritize the here and now, the glitz and the glamour of the present age. Oftentimes, we are just as bad or worse than those that do not know you and are not known by you in a salvific sense. And oh God, far too often we behave that way. We're full of selfishness and pride, infighting, division, destruction. You call us to a better way, the way of submission and humility, the way of meekness, the way of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How often was Jesus mocked and ridiculed by his brother, brothers, and James in particular? How often was his perfection called into question as they were growing up as young boys? And how did he respond? Always with grace, always with kindness, always with compassion. Because it wasn't about him. It was all about you, Father. And so is that true of us? Is the focus on us or is the focus on you? Oh God, help the focus to be on you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.